Welcome to Carrying Wayward, a supernatural podcast for fans who aren't ready to let go and newcomers to the series who are ready to jump in. I'm Marie Vigourou. And I'm Drew Shulman. In this episode, we're diving into Supernatural Season 2, Episode 2, Everybody Loves a Clown. Let's get this show on the road. impressions this is the first episode i had to watch with the lights on <laughs> oh my god I know. <laughs> isn't it awful so i don't mind clowns i can go to a carnival i can interact with clowns growing up one of my closest friends her father was a, a lawyer by day a clown by night i loved the man but creepy clowns are just that much creepier than anything else that's normally creepy. Creepy clowns is one thing, but I don't know. We'll talk about this a little bit later, but this is the one episode where I just cannot watch, like, the murder scenes. Or I had to watch them with, like, my hand over my eyes or something. Yeah, I couldn't watch it. It was just so creepy. So creepy. I figured with the gorier scenes, I know you're not as comfortable, but these weren't gory. They they, they cut away before anything happened. I know. I wasn't afraid of the actual murder. I was just afraid of the fear that they feel when they see this creepy freaking clown staring at them as they're waking but you, up. But you know what? I do totally get it. Like, I 100% yeah. understand where you're coming from. Oh, God. I'm not ready for mannequin <laughs> monsters. <laughs> but are you ready for the recap? Yes. Surprisingly, the timer is ready. <laughs> two minutes on the clock. Three, two, one, go. We get a lead finally uh, after a very upset Sam at a funeral and Dean being all stoic and brave at a funeral for poor John as they burn his body, which I honestly very smart move. Please, like good call, boys. Uh, they finally break into his phone after a few weeks of hanging out at Bobby's and find a voicemail from some woman named Ellen that John has kept. Ooh, who could this be? Let's go looking. We find the dingiest, old, worst-looking bar we've ever seen. They break in, because why wouldn't you? And are immediately stopped by Ella and her daughter, Joe, who are clearly equally as badass, if not badder asses, than the two of them. We also meet Ash, who I think is a great example of don't judge a book by its cover, because damn is he smart despite the mullet. Eventually, as an excuse to move the episode along, we end up at a circus hunting a killer clown who seems to vanish and only kill adults uh, and not the children. Really, nothing happens until the point that we eventually get the emotional breakdown of Dean and Sam, and they talk about their feelings a bit more about John's passing. They eventually find the clown and kill it, and then Ash reveals that he's built this crazy computer contraption to track the yellow-eyed demon. Time. 40 seconds left. Congrats. Excellent. I said this a bit during our, like, prep time, but the actual plot of this episode, the there's a clown, it's been killing people, they stop it, is so secondary. The real episode is all the, I feel like the biggest moments in this episode all happen away from the plot. It's one of those episodes where I feel like the monster of the week isn't the clown. The monster of the week is grief. Yeah, well put. So we're, we're going to dive into that in story time a little bit. For now, if I can just go back to your recap quickly with our long game. Like you said, we meet Joe, we meet Ellen, and we meet Ash, and we see the roadhouse for the first time. Those are going to be, I mean, the, road, the roadhouse is going to become like a landmark, and Joe, Ellen, and Ash are, becoming, are going to become very important characters in the next couple of seasons. There's one thing that Joe says that I, like, 
I mean, we can, that I just wanted to mention. Uh, mm-hmm. She says at one point, like most hunters that walk through this door think that they can get in my pants with some pizza, six pack, and side one of Zeppelin 4. And it's really interesting that she says that because in later seasons, the show is going to strongly associate pizza with sex and Led Zeppelin with romance. And I was shocked to see this coming up so early. Like, I already like the idea. I feel like a lot of shows do that where they don't want to blatantly talk about a subject. So they kind of find an analogous something. I mean, I really do like pizza. So I guess it kind of works. I, I, in this case, like you'll see, it's it starts... I can't remember exactly when it starts, but it starts fairly early on. So we'll we'll have a chance to talk about that a bit more. Another thing that we find out that does become important a little bit later on in a couple of episodes, obviously not central to the plot, but certainly <laughs> interesting, is that Sam is very afraid of clowns. And it's played off well in this episode. It's like done very cute and subtle. Like it's never over the top, but I think he also just kind of doesn't like carnivals in general. But like some of the interactions he comes up to during the episode that are not directly clown related, but just like carnival centric. I mean, I guess by by association, but it just seems like he's generally not a big fan of like of the carnival. I mean, I definitely have some thoughts about that. But yes, I don't think that Sam is as comfortable with the carnival and the carnies as Dean would be. Lastly, throughout the episode, Sam is doing things because it's what he thinks John would have wanted. And I want us to keep this in mind, that Sam thinks that honoring a deceased person's wishes is the best way to feel close to them or to keep their memory alive. And that that's how Sam copes, I guess, with the loss of someone. Shall we jump into story time? We shall. So as we discussed briefly uh, when we started this episode, the theme, or at the very least, the monster of the week this, this week, feels more like grief to me than the killer clown. And we're seeing that really through the episode. And I, I just want to briefly open a parenthesis about carnival and carnies here, because this setting is usually associated with some pretty specific tropes in media and literature. When we're talking about carnival, we're talking about outcasts who don't fit into society and who are rejected by their blood family and basically end up making their own found family with the other carnies. And, you know, the circles are tight-knit, they're very close and closed off to outsiders. And does that remind you of anyone? Definitely a level of found family in in, in the carny tropes, but also in just the way the boys lead their lives. They are very much a, they are very much outcasts who make their own way through life and find their own friends. Which I think comes across as such an interesting parallel to dip a little further into the episode when they actually speak to the ringleader of the circus. Yeah. And he kind of tells them, like, just go to school and get out of here. Like, we'll talk about that more when we get there, but just the idea that they are being seen as too normal for the circus when they have their own story. So just because they don't present themselves as outcasts, he feels that they can get away with it. Almost like, if you pass as normal, why not just live a normal life? Versus embracing who you really are on the inside and being what you want to be. Like you said, the theme of found family is also really quite important, and we're seeing that also in how the boys are actually setting up shop at Bobby's auto shop. Uh, We're also seeing it in what Ellen is saying when they meet her. You know, John was like family once. There's there's definitely... So we're going to be talking a lot about grief and found family today, from what I understand. Yeah, that was very evident in this episode, that this is very much the theme we'll be following. Uh, Even to just really jump in right away at the very beginning, the funeral for John... 
we see Sam is much more visually embracing the emotional impact, although we will learn later that he maybe wasn't accepting it as much, versus Dean, who is once again playing the role of the parent, is holding it together, is not letting it get to him. And I think that this sort of introduces the idea that grief looks different on everybody. As we learn at the end of the episode, we shouldn't judge the way that somebody grieves just because it's not outwardly or because it doesn't look like what we think it should look like. So I, I absolutely agree with you. You know, like there's there's something very uh, externalized with the way that Sam is grieving. So he's crying, uh, whereas Dean is not. And one thing also that I noticed about that scene is that when Sam is asking Dean if John had said anything before he died, Dean actually responds no. And I feel like the lie is important here, given that we were just talking last week about the importance of truth-telling in family. Yep. I know, right? And to sort of see Dean falling into John's old ways... Like, so immediately, too. So immediately. It felt like a little bit of a betrayal, almost. And if not a betrayal, like, definitely a disappointment. And obviously, like, there's this single man tear that falls from his <laughs> eye at that moment. And I can't stop thinking about, is he crying because of the secret that he's holding in? Or is he crying because he's grieving his father? Because it's not clear to me. I mean, to me, it felt more like the secret. Not that he's holding it in, but that he knows something in this moment. So again, here's a great example of one of those times where I literally have no idea what the secret is, and you do. So I'm going to just say my first instinct in this moment was whatever John told him, I don't want to say upset him, but just took him out of it so much that he became a little detached that he was able to go through this whole, almost as if he were angry at John in some sense. Mm -hmm. And that's why, like, on top of the way that Dean's already not very outward with his emotions, it, this just adds to it. He's very stoic and almost, like, upset with John, like he's been betrayed. And then when Sam asks about the secret and he says, no, he never said anything, it's him reckoning with the fact that, yes, he did, and it hurt me what he said, and I have to keep it a secret from you. And that's what gets to him. This is actually impressive, uh, considering that you're telling me you don't know about this. Um, because I, no idea. Yeah, and and I agree with you also. Like he is forced into silence, really, because mm -hmm. um, I mean, again, we'll find out later. But he is quite literally. John has forced him into silence, into not opening up to his brother about whatever it is that he said. This is a deathbed confession, right? So this is important. And I think that there absolutely is a level of anger in Dean because he is, again, forced into silence by his father. Dean! Damn it, John! And they're fighting, too, about this, right? Sam wants Dean to talk about grieving John, and Dean actually, like, just needs to sit in his grief and work on his car. Sam wants revenge. Dean knows that they're not equipped to get revenge. There's no leads, no cult. There's a lot of tension. And like I said, they're just processing their grief so differently, and it's just kind of causing them to drift apart a little in this episode. People grieve differently. I feel like I can be very Dean sometimes, and I feel like I can be very Sam sometimes. I think we all contain multitudes, and just we're seeing two extremes of that that spectrum with the two of them. I agree. I, I absolutely agree. Are we ready to talk about Joe? 
Oh my god, yes, that entire gang of the Roadhouse. Love them. They need their own show. I want them in every episode. Uh, I think I have a small crush on all three of them, but that's another story. Let's continue. (laughs) Okay, so I want to talk about Joe's introduction because... This is something that we know from Eric Kripke from an interview that he gave. Uh, and I know that I don't usually like to bring up Eric Kripke or any like creator in story time, but I think this is really important because Do he it. did say, thank you. He did say that Dean would be attracted to someone who would walk into a room and could kick anyone's ass in the room. Obviously, that's what Joe does, right? And the first thing that Dean tells her or says to her is a sexual innuendo. A gay sexual innuendo, might I add, but an innuendo nonetheless. You know, please let that be a rifle. And Joe is definitely able to keep up with him, first by answering his sexual comment with another sexual comment, and then by punching him right on the nose when he disarms her. So kudos to Joe. (laughs) Because clearly, according to Kripke, like, and also to anyone who knows about Dean, uh, this is someone that he could be attracted to. Yeah, very much. Like, I feel like if I were watching this for the first time and really hadn't, especially being a younger viewer, may have not clocked the bisexuality of Dean as evidently as we have now, I think this would have been my immediate, like, oh, you're a couple. This is going to be a thing in a few seasons. I'm calling it now. I mean, he's bisexual, but that doesn't mean that he can't date women, right? Like, on the contrary, that means that, so he he absolutely can date her. Uh, that's that's not the issue, but I yes, <laughs> it's it's an ob- it's I don't like to use the term obvious, but yes, clearly, like this is there's tension there of the pizza variety. <laughs> yes, of the pizza variety, absolutely. And actually, I'm gonna say that I don't think it's a mistake that her name is uh, shortened to a gender neutral or even masculine name, Joe. Um, Because, you know, near the end of the episode, we find out that, you know, Ash got kicked out of MIT for fighting. After we find that out, he sort of gives, like, Dean a look and, like, there's there's something. And then also, like, Dean tells Ash to call them if he finds anything. And then, like, he replies, CC compadre. And he smiles and, like, he tilts his head when he hears it. Like, ugh. I don't know. Again, like I, I am not a queer man, right? I am a queer woman. And so I can't always pick up like the signs, I guess, that men send each other in those situations. But I definitely picked up on that. <laughs> no, it, it's it is evident as a man who is I've been around the block a few times. Uh, it's there. It's cute. It's subtle. It's there. It's it's a very mannish way of doing things. But that is definitely two men kind of giving each other signals and testing the water. Right? Oh my god. And he says that he likes Ash's haircut, like, just before the camera follows, like, Joe's butt as she walks away. Like, this is bi-boy heaven for Dean, okay? Like, I'm sorry. (laughs) Like, you have two people that you're attracted to of different genders. Like, ah, I would love that. And, like, I also find it interesting that, like, he doesn't actually openly proposition Joe. And I was wondering... Why do you think that is? Okay, I have a lot of thoughts about this. This is actually what I want to bring up. Okay, I'm listening. I think a major bit of this episode, especially in the interactions he has with Joe, and the first one being the, you can see him start the line and then stops himself. I think this is very much Dean, for the first time since John's passing, 
realizing he doesn't need to be the man John thinks I am anymore. He's allowed to be himself. Dean is a bi character. We are not questioning this anymore, but he's had to hide it because he knows he'd be disapproved. It would be seen disapprovingly by John. Suddenly, the figure who's been looming over him this entire time, kind of acting as the, you know, like you, like the the thing, the wagging finger of a parent being like, you can't be bi, you have to be a manly man who sleeps with women. He suddenly doesn't have to be that. Yeah. And this is the first time, and again, it's pretty soon after. I mean, what has it been, two weeks since the funeral, I think, at this point? Something like that, I think. And they've pretty much been cooped up at Bobby's entire time, him underneath a car for the entirety of those two weeks. Yeah. He's now interacting with a woman who, like you said, by all cosmic signs should be his perfect match. And he just sort of has a moment where he's allowed to go, I don't have to give you the cheesy pickup line. I don't have to put on an act. I don't have to play beer-swilling dude in bar who hits on every woman. Mm. The pizza six-pack and side one of Zeppelin Four. Yeah. Not to say that he wouldn't love those things. Exactly. And, he, and he, lo- he does love those things, but he just... Yeah, that's so true. It's interesting because, like, I had, like... I was so close to that realization in my notes. Like, I can... I wrote, actually, that he feels that he can drop the macho act around women for the... And so I feel... But I think that you're explaining it much more... Yeah, just from a place of more... But something else, too, it goes with it, is just his promiscuity in general. You realize that he's probably slept with so many women just to sort of help push that narrative to make sure that other men knew he was a manly man who sleeps with pretty girls. And again, suddenly, that is no longer something he has to worry about questioning. He doesn't feel the need to have to, you know... Either A, make the move, get turned down, and go, uh, I almost had her, or the, oh, I, another notch on my belt. He really can stop this act of being this promiscuous, flirty guy when he doesn't feel like he needs to be. He still has every right to be that guy, and I am sure with 14 seasons ahead of us, it will happen again. I don't doubt it, but I think in this moment, he realizes that there's no one to put the show on for. You know, this is super interesting. I actually really appreciate your comments, and... I still find it interesting because a little bit later, like he gets super uncomfortable when they're asking Mr. Cooper for work and he ends up saying something like, Sam has a thing for the bearded lady. And then the face that Sam gives him is one that we'll see like again and again on the show where he's like, why do you have to be like that? (laughs) He's just so fed up with him. (laughs) And this sort of felt like a callback to Bugs where Dean like jokes about pretending to be a couple with Sam and Sam is just like, why? Why are you like this? Like, it's just... (laughs) I just feel like the line, why are you like this, can be said so... (laughs) It's just such a great Dean, like, sum up. But it's true, like, because I feel like if anybody knows about or is able to to recognize when when Dean is overcompensating, it's Sam. And to see him say something like that, he's like, I'm not the one who's bisexual. You are, you asshole. Like, don't... <laughs> like, why are you always throwing me under the bus? And of all the characters that could be uh, described, the bearded woman being the choice was, I think, just a little bit like, not on the nose per se, but it was like... It was a conscious choice, wasn't it? Yeah, they definitely lacked a little subtlety. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, 
Did you clock the other callback to bugs, though? No, what else? Okay, so when Mr. Cooper is talking about living regular, which you've mentioned uh, at the top of the episode, mm-hmm. so in Bugs, if we remember well, Dean is completely rejecting the white picket fence. He's like, you know, he wouldn't have any other upbringing than the one that they got. And here, it's actually Sam who goes like, we don't want to go to school. We don't want regular. We want this. And you can tell that this is not sitting well with Dean. And so I'm finding like an interesting contrast between Dean, who was just so adamant that the life that they got was fine. And then now hearing his brother saying like, no, we want this weird ass life. He's not super happy to hear it from Sam. The fact that I didn't catch it and then that Dean makes a big stink about it right after that, I think was even more jarring to me because they are so used to lying to people to get what they need because it's part of their gig that it didn't phase me. It was just, it was them filling in the lie to get the job. They were just literally doing what they had to do. But to then have Dean turn around and be so adamant about what do you mean? I don't want to go back to school. That was just part of the act, right? You're not actually thinking that, right? Like that there's a part of Dean that heard that and got worried. Yeah. I think again, harkens back to this moment of having to fill John's role a little bit. So as much as John's shadow is no longer over him, he now needs to fill in that role for Sam even more so. And we know John wants Sam to go back to a normal life. So by the transitive properties, Dean now feels like he has to have that. He has to have that want for Sam. See, that's interesting because I don't think I would have put that together necessarily because in my mind, like Dean was always Sam's dad. So I don't, I don't think I would have put that together, but I appreciate it and I see it. So here's the difference, though. I think what's changed in this moment, the little change we're seeing, and I think this, again, is wholeheartedly due to either the way Dean is processing losing John or what John said, I can't be sure. But the difference has always been while Dean had to play the parental role, he never stopped wanting to be Sam's brother and best friend. But suddenly he is now putting Sam's needs or wants ahead of his own even more so in the sense of, I don't want you to come on the road with me and adventure forever. I'll keep doing that, but I want you to go back to being safe and sound. Shall we move on to the big blowout? Mm, Let's. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so do you want to like walk us through what you saw? So I think the big takeaway from this explosion is just... To, to go back to the beginning of this episode, like our episode, grief is something that people feel very differently. I think sometimes it can be really hard to see somebody and know they're in pain. Like, I don't think anyone is looking at Dean going, oh, Dean's totally fine with this. Yeah, John died two weeks ago. He couldn't care less. They know what he's feeling. And this might be a trope in just sort of being a man. Men want to fix things. And Sam sees pain in his brother and wants to find a way to help him get past that pain to fix the problem. Dean has made it very clear that the way he processes is not outward. It is internal. If he feels he needs help, he'll come get it. He says he will or he implies he will, whether he will or not is a whole other bucket of worms. But this is the way he deals with grief. And the way he deals with grief is the way that he has to deal with it. And it makes Sam also come out and say that the way he's been dealing with grief has also been not the way 
he wants to. He's been dealing with grief the way he feels he has to because it's what he wants other people to give him. You know, it's interesting because, like, every time I watch this episode, like, I'm always resentful towards Sam for saying that Dean isn't dealing with John's death because, like, to me, it's so clear that he is grieving by working on the car. Like you said, like, we can't judge grief based on what it looks like on the outside because grief doesn't look the same on everybody and is also not linear. You know, it comes in waves and some days you'll feel okay and some days you won't. And some moments you'll feel okay and some moments you won't. And all of that is normal and okay. And there's no, like, there's no normal in grieving or there's no one way to grieve. And you can see that Dean is just so angry with people asking him if he's okay that he ends up lashing out at Sam the same way that John used to lash out at him. Dean stopped adopting Johnisms. But you can tell that he instantly regrets it, though, also. And so I think that that's important because, again, like, Dean has only had John and TV as models, as role models. And so he got annoyed with people, and so he lashed out at the person closest to him. That's what John used to do, and now he did it with Sam. And he regrets it, and so hopefully he can identify that and, you know, maybe not lash out at Sam next time. Hopefully this is a growing moment for both of them. It's one of those rare moments that I asked for way back when in a crossroads deal of letting them deal with their emotions, and yeah, I mean... They are at least dealing with them in some sense. They've taken some time away to work on the car. They're taking on a smaller case just to kind of get back to normal, which I think is a coping mechanism. But at least it's gotten into a point where they can discuss things. And, you know, Sam has his realization that he's not doing this, that the air quotes, doing what John would have wanted isn't helping in any way. And then he has to find his own way to deal with it and learn and grow. And ultimately, they all come away from this episode a little better even while still grieving, which I think is important as well. Absolutely agreed. And like you said, they end up patching it up, right? Yeah. Uh, Before the end of the episode. And Sam recognizes his own issues with his dad. uh, And he's finally focusing inward instead of focusing on Dean, because that was also the thing, right? Sam, I feel, was really distracting himself. So Dean was very openly distracting himself with the car. And Sam, I think, was distracting himself with Dean. You said Mm -hmm. that Sam was trying to fix Dean while Dean was trying to fix the car. And so I just find (laughs) that so, like, what a circle, right? That is adorable. I kind of love that. (laughs) Yeah. So he finally starts focusing inward a little bit. And Dean takes a crowbar to the car and actually externalizes his feelings. I can relate. There may or may not be a video footage of me destroying a couch after needing to grieve for myself, so... And I may or may not have set that to a wrecking ball by uh, Miley Cyrus. (laughs) It was an interesting time. So I feel like, you know, we've come full circle from the beginning of the episode where the boys have found what they need in order to grieve their father. At the end of the day, you got to learn how to grieve. you got to learn what you can and can't control. And I think they have gotten to a very good point. And I will also commend the show for letting them reach a conclusion without ending grieving. You know, this isn't, this isn't over. 
I won't be shocked if next episode has moved on enough that maybe it's a little more in the past. But in this moment, they're not just saying, okay, we're done, we're past grieving. They've just learned how to handle a little bit better and handle each other a bit better. Yeah, exactly. It feels probably a little less raw at the very least. So, mm-hmm. yeah, we'll see what happens next episode with that. Shall we hop into critical time? We shall. So, Mary, who was our writer for this episode? So, the writer for this episode is actually John Sheban, who has given us episodes in season one like Skin, Hookman, Scarecrow, The Benders, and Dead Man's Blood. And can't you see it? Yeah, some of my favorite episodes for sure. And yeah, I can see that in both the... The, the, just just the style of the episode. Yeah, there's something definitely there. There's definitely a vibe there. Oh, absolutely. And uh, the director was Phil Scritchia. The, the episode is named after a song by Gary Lewis and the Playboys. So I think that that's just interesting. Like I went to look at the, at the lyrics. If anybody wants to do a closer analysis of that, I think that that could be interesting. So yeah. Weirdly just... a song from my childhood. I know it well. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's so cool. So... Critically speaking, this episode, like, I guess story time was all about the boys and their grieving. Critical time just about the circus. Yeah, it is about the circus. Yeah. Uh, It's a great setting. And I mean, especially talking about just sort of, again, re reevaluating their lives a little bit, especially the grief of losing their father. The circus is a great set piece for that. This kind of place of as we alluded to earlier, kind of outcast of society. It does play a very nice backdrop and they do it really well. I, I got to say, I like the vibe. It's kind of always dirty and loud and busy. It feels real. You feel like you're there. Definitely. It had, in terms of set design, I actually felt like it was a little bit faith-like. Well, it's sort of this like the idea of like this big, open, empty area that otherwise would be full of nothingness has something erected in it for the sake of bringing, whether it be religion, joy, fun, peace, something to the masses. If we talk about the clown itself, uh, before we actually get into the Monster of the Week side of things, but the clown itself was just, as I said top of the episode, I don't mind clowns, but I think there is this great level of creepiness to achieve from something that should be harmless turning like that. It would almost be less scary if the clown were revealed to be more of a creature during these, like, kills or these, like, you know, deaths. But it just smiles. It's just it's just a clown. Like, it does, like yes, towards the end when we actually fight it, we kind of see those, like, yellowish eyes and we get kind of, like, a allusion to there's more to this creature than what we're seeing. But... The clown itself is just so well executed. That's true. Yeah, that's true. That's, um, (laughs) it's okay. So full disclaimer, I can't actually watch those scenes. Like I said, like I have to either skip or just not watch the murders. So I haven't actually seen the clown in some time. (laughs) So if we're talking creepy clowns, I think the most obvious comparison to draw would be Stephen King's It. For any viewer who has seen, I actually haven't seen the newer ones. So I'll be looking at the original made-for-TV movie of It, starring uh, Tim Curry. I genuinely remember watching the movie as a kid and being more freaked out by the clown being calm, cool, and collected than I was when it was this weird, demon-y spider creature in the sewers. 
And I think this just goes to the whole, you know, you don't have to reveal everything. Secrets can be spookier. So by having this creature of the week that is so much just a hidden behind a mask, it is scarier than anything you could ever show us. And the fact that as much as you've skipped those scenes, there's no gore, there's no blood. We never actually see it kill. All we ever see is this moment of people realizing there's a clown in my house and then cut to black. And that to me is just masterful. Rightfully so, <laughs> that reaction. But from a horror movie fanboy, chef's kiss. You know, absolutely. And I mean, I think that that's the whole intended effect, right? So kudos. <laughs> so if I can go a little more Monster of the Week for just a second, I did try to look up a little bit on the Rakshasa. Uh, for once, I have been handed a Creature of the Week that I did not know anything about. I usually pride myself, whether it be through video games or movie or just reading up on the occult, I know these things. This one eluded me completely, and according to the research I did online, eludes a lot of people. There is very little on it. Uh, it comes from um, uh, Hinduism uh, background, and a lot of um, Indian religion and folklore do talk about it. There's not much to say. Some stories have shown it as evil or as good. Uh, the ones where it is evil, it does eat flesh. Um, I did try to look up if there was any kind of history to the bronze being used to kill it. Nothing I could find on that. Also, to point out, and this came from the uh, the fun facts on Amazon, so I am stealing this. Um, they specify that you need pure bronze to kill it. Okay. <laughs> you can't make pure bronze, because bronze no. is an alloy of two other metals. So Accurate. pure bronze yes. doesn't exist, but that, just a fun little bit of uh, lack of research there. I guess I'm whoever put that line in. Um, the last thing I'll say, though, is um, the two translations for the word Rakshasa to English uh, from Malayan means giant. So I guess, they, and I believe in the stories, they were kind of seen as these like giant creatures that fought alongside like gods and demons. Uh, and in Bengali, it means to, it was weird, it kind of specified to eat nonstop, which seemed like a really weird specific term to have. Yeah, like gluttony, I guess, or something. Okay, interesting. Or like to, just to in excess almost. Oh, in excess. Okay, all right, yeah. to consume so in excess. I, Again, yeah. it, this feels to me, again, kind of like a, we just needed a creature of the week, and some of the other details, like that it's a shapeshifter or it can change its form, do make sense for it, and they just sort of needed to fill a role, which I think was fine. You know, you didn't you, you didn't do it a disservice, you kind of gave us the bare minimum before, but you didn't really, like, abuse it in any way, so no complaints on my part. It led me to a bit of interesting reading, so thank you. Yeah, there you go. I guess, like, the only thing I would say about that is that if the words are to be translated from Malayan and Bengali, then it seems a little strange to me that a white dude would be a Rakshasa. Well, again, we've seen it as kind of a shapeshifter. I think the white dude was just a form it took. Oh, we do kind of okay, see okay. once he, yeah, you do. That's kind of what I was alluding to is you do see when he does eventually stab it, uh, Sam, it yeah. begins to kind of like morph and get bigger almost. As if it were going back to its initial form, but staying invisible, which I think was, again, kind of nice, alluding to that there is something more to this thing, but we're not going to, you know, ruin it by showing it to you. We're going to let it sort of just fade away. Then it feels really strange that they would have done that with the carnival. Like, it feels like they tried to mesh a bunch of things together that, unless we're missing something in the messaging, but, like, it feels strange to me that they would mix, like, 
Malayan or Bengali lore with carnies? Yeah, I feel like I I, I think the I think it was this is a case of they had their setting, they had their killer clown, and they just need to fill in the gap. And I guess just a, a cursory search of like list of creatures from other cultures that they could pull in for the sake of having a creature without like repeating or pulling out something they wanted to say for a bigger episode, maybe. Okay, so perhaps not the best depiction in terms of uh, cultural integrity. Um, okay, so good to know. Good to know. Thank you for that. This week, we have a voicemail from Nell. In episode 19, Provenance, Sam brings up the fact that Dean doesn't know what the term provenance means, um, and he sort of makes fun of it, him for it. And Drew brings up the fact that Dean sort of plays along and is willing to make fun of himself for it. Um, but I think what's going on there is pretty deep. Um, so throughout the series, we see that Dean deals with hurt through humor. Um, the fact that he doesn't know this stuff and that Sam makes fun of him for it actually really hurts him and hurts his feelings because Dean just didn't actually have the same opportunities that Sam did because he was raising Sam. And early on in life, Dean was, as many children uh, are unfairly, labeled as stupid or unmotivated or lazy. He was probably the kid who fell asleep in class regularly or was out of class regularly, uh, not because he didn't care, but because he was raising a child um, while trying to keep that child from knowing about the darkest parts of the world. So he would miss class because he would have to take care of Sam if Sam was sick or protect him if there was something bad around. He would also have to probably stay up late and take care of Sam. And we know that he does this, that he's taking care of Sam a lot. So Dean was given this label really, really early on in life. And what he did was what he does frequently throughout the series is internalize that label and decided to own it because if he's the one making fun of himself, it won't hurt, right? Um, but it absolutely does hurt. And so he grows up feeling very angry that he didn't even have these opportunities and that he didn't have the choice uh, to be smart. He was the dumb one when he just didn't have the opportunity to be smart. And so I think when Sam pokes fun at him for this, it hits right at a really deep personal pain that Dean has and a personal thing that he feels very inferior about, um, which is one of the major ways that the boys are really divided in early years of the show because Sam doesn't actually realize yet just what Dean went through to keep him safe. We start to see a little bit of this emerging in this season, but it's not until later in the show that Sam suddenly sort of starts to figure out like, oh, Dean had to really do a lot of major legwork to keep me going um, and to keep me safe. And so at this point, Sam just hasn't realized that yet. So he pokes fun at something that he thinks is an innocent thing to poke fun at their brothers. Um, but Dean, to him, that just fuels his sort of inferiority complex and his feeling of personal inadequacy, which we can get into all of his sort of savior complexy things and how he thinks that his only use in the world is to uh, keep other people safe. But uh, I just thought it's really interesting that we're seeing this now that um, Sam is making fun of Dean for not knowing this term, which the term provenance isn't even very common. I know it um, because I have an anthropology background, but not many people would know the term provenance, especially not if they haven't had the opportunity to spend time in that sort of world. So I think we're really seeing here um, some of Dean, Dean's greatest insecurities coming to light and Sam's inability to recognize those insecurities. 
through uh, this show or through all of this. So I, uh, I loved your episode. I loved all of your takes on everything. Uh, keep up the hard work. So first off, Nell, thank you so much for taking the time to actually send us a voicemail. As you know, we absolutely adore them. We always feel so, so special whenever we receive one. Um, so if anybody has any thoughts that they'd like to share with us, you can, of course, feel free to share it in a tweet. But we really do appreciate when we can hear your voice. You know, there's one term that you used in your voicemail that I really connected with, and it's the term labeling. Um especially when you say that Dean ends up internalizing and owning the label that's being given to him. In this case, you know, lazy or stupid or unintelligent, unapplied. What happens when you're labeling someone really is that they can end up, like you said, internalizing it. And what that results in is like an erosion of their own identity, their own personhood to kind of like center more closely around the label that they've been given. And so when teachers label kids as lazy or stupid, what ends up happening is that the kids do end up centering their own definition of themselves around those labels. And, um, you know, I'm thinking about all the listeners and all of the the fans of Supernatural who like to think of Dean as having ADHD. And I mean, just thinking about being a kid in the 90s who potentially had ADHD, um, you know, to be labeled that way as many of my especially guy friends were, yeah, these are very real experiences that a lot of people in our generation have experienced and probably even worse for Dean because he came a few years before us. So I just wanted to say a huge thank you for pointing this out um, because it's it's very true and we're seeing it in Dean all the time. So thank you. I also just want to say a huge thank you. It was a very great voicemail. And as someone who was not very applied in school myself, I understand that. I was, of my friend group, kind of the least of the intelligent. I was the one who wasn't in the gifted programs or in the advanced programs. You know, I understand what it's like to be not the smartest and have people kind of make that your thing. And it's tough because at some point you kind of just embrace it because it helps you connect to people. You know, it's that self-deprecation. It's even now as a larger guy, it's easier just to sort of joke around about my tummy. And, you know, I, I'd love to get into shape and feel better, but it's also part of who I am and I need to be able to be comfortable with it. And it's not someone else's, you know, target to shoot at. It's it's my identity. It's who I am and how I identify and what I want to be. And Dean, in his case, we see it. He unfortunately was not given a chance to grow up and gain the education that someone else like Sam was, and it shows. And it's not to say that he's not smart, he's just not educated in a classical sense. Exactly. And I think to me, like, that's the part that hurts the most, is that those labels are wrong. He's not lazy, he's not stupid, he's not unintelligent, he is none of those things, and yet because he was labeled that way, he ended up internalizing it and thinking of himself that way. And I think that that's just really sad. Yeah. Hmm. Ay, poor Dean. Oh, Dean. Dean. 
Shall we move on to our crossroads? We shall. Would you like to get us started, Drew? I would. And I was a bit worried because I kind of knew where I wanted to go with mine. And then I saw your notes and went, damn it. <laughs> I mean, go ahead. It's fine. If, even if we have the same one, it's, I think it's okay. No, because I think I have an interesting backup one that now that I've thought about it a bit more, I almost like better. So, Ooh, okay. All right. Go ahead. I feel like we made it very clear how this episode's whole circus motif and killer clown was very secondary to the major plot of dealing with grief and, you know, emotions. And I don't think... I don't think it added anything. I feel like last episode we kind of talked about how as much as it was a lot of wasted time of Dean trying to solve this Monster of the Week case, which ended up just being a Reaper there to teach him a lesson which ultimately he doesn't remember because he loses his memory, which is a whole other frustration. In this case, we do have a setting where I think they could have grown, maybe not in the grief side of things, but in the found family side of things. And I think I would have liked more time at the carnival and more specifically, more time with the, and I say this with all of the air quotes and hope you understand when I say these words, the freaks. And it's alluded to when they first start talking to uh, the ringleader. He makes a comment that unfortunately is very true historically that, you know, freak shows were deemed inhumane, which I agree with. But then you had people who had no other life skills because they'd grown up doing this and being supported in these groups who now had to go out in the world and make their own way but society still looked down on them for being, in their eyes, not normal. And I think having this found family, this community, these people who are not just different in the way Sam and Dean are different, but different in a visual sense that makes it much easier for an audience to understand, would have been a great cast of characters, even just in this episode, to introduce and use as a part of the plot. Yeah, I agree. And I just think it would have allowed for a lot of questioning and looking into things. And ultimately, I love the idea that it could have been a almost like they were sidekicks. Like they kind of understood the plight because they've been through so much. They've seen weirder things. I mean, they have a psychic in their group. Like it wouldn't have been out of the question that there might have been a killer in the parks and they knew more and they were the they were the source of information and the research in this case and given us, Hey, they are, they are more than just freaks. Let them have layers would have been just a great secondary lesson to this episode. Of course, I don't think it would have fit with the grief side of things. So ultimately I think this would have worked better as a, as a separate episode, but I think they could have made a really good episode about the the societal perception of freaks in a freak show at a carnival along with the brothers who look completely normal but have their own i mean things that they're hiding from other people that they don't feel comfortable sharing and need to find their own ways to becoming acceptable but maybe not in this episode so my crossroads deal what i would give up i would give up the very immediate 
reactions to dealing with John's death and let that simmer over several episodes more, maybe. There's something that you said, actually, that I... So first of all, I absolutely agree. And it's true that my crossroads is very close to yours. We're just attacking it from different angles. So this idea that the... And, and we're, we're using the, the word freak specifically because it's that's the way that it's been described in the episode, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think that the word freak is also going to become very important later on in the in the next couple of seasons, particularly for Sam. Uh, and it was very important to Dean on skin last season. So clearly, you're right. There's a theme there, the theme of being outcast from society and othered from society. Um, that is very important. And I think, and I, I agree, I don't think that this was explored as much as it could have. Mm-hmm. Um, because I, I, this episode feels like it's trying to fit in a lot of stuff all at once. And I'm not sure that it worked in that sense. So Say, I feel like the last episode and this episode suffer from the same issue, which is, for whatever reason, can't break from the tradition of a Monster of the Week episode to explore deeper things. So they cram something in to make it feel like a Monster of the Week episode, rather than, if I can sh- use Buffy as an example... I feel like every time there was a monster of the week, it was always used to fit into the story versus just being there while the story was happening. I'm sure there's some off episodes even in Buffy, but I feel like in the, the, the fact that it's two in a row now of season two, and I understand this is the first two episodes of the season. There's a lot of things to get out of the way, but it feels like you could have maybe found a monster of the week that better suited it. And maybe had saved this carnival and clown and freaks and found family for its own episode. Absolutely agree. And that's exactly my crossroads deal. Like, I wish that we had removed the carnival altogether because I'm also not entirely sure how I feel about how how much of a caricature they made the, the, the carnies. You know, this is not part of like my lived experience, but it just felt very tropey. And so for a show that tries to, to be as close to reality as possible in the way that they portray people in relationships, like I just, I'm not sure about it. Like I feel off about it. So wish remove the carnival so that we can focus on the grief and keep the carnival for later where we can actually really explore the theme of uh, feeling othered and uh, feeling like an outcast and found family. I will respond to my own crossroads though. (laughs) Go for it. (laughs) Because I'm just very contrarian. Um, The monster of the week, I feel, was also a good way to represent grief. And hear me out. It happens at unexpected times. It's invisible most of the time. And it's blind in the sense that it affects everyone equally. That is really well thought out. I had not considered this. So that's why I personally don't have a problem with the monster of the week so much. I have a problem with the setting of the monster of the week. So I think that it was a good monster of the week, not developed enough because we spent so much time on the carnival for no real reason. There was barely any payoff for that. But yeah, I think that the monster of the week works, not in the carnival setting, in this episode anyway. In the larger theme of the series, yes, but not in this episode. No, you're right. I think I would have loved to have seen the same creature explored a little more. 
And again, they could have then involved a little more of the lore and the reasoning and some expertise. This could have also been a great time to use the resources at their disposal now to kind of help set dress a little bit of, you know, being at the roadhouse and having people who have other knowledge. And, you know, what have you heard or what are the stories or, I mean, heck, even if they had gone back to Ellen and Joe and uh, used the roadhouse as like a, like a weapons cache almost of being like, oh, rumor has it you can kill it with one of these. And like one of these other hunters had left it here because he knew there was one in the area, like build the world a little bit and build them a little bit. Because they really are introduced, swept under a rug, and then brought back for the end of the episode. Yeah, it's all very strange. Like, it feels like perhaps there was, like, some sort of meshing of two episodes, perhaps, in this episode. Like, I don't know. I don't want to speculate about that. I would almost say that. three episodes. <laughs> Potentially, yeah. But, and yeah, like, we saw, I think we saw last season there was an episode that was, like, canned and rewritten to be redone. Or they were given... Uh, preliminarily X number of episodes and one was taken away or one extra one was added kind of thing. And again, that's just the world of production. Um, things happen, you have to work around them. And if this really was the meshing of two episodes, kudos for making ultimately a really good episode all around. Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, this is an episode that I enjoyed. I want to be clear about that. Um, the reason why we're able to nitpick is because it was good. Otherwise, we be talking about it like we talked about bugs <laughs> or the benders we'd have a real carny in studio with us to explain why it was so bad if that was the case yeah exactly exactly oh, we get a carny on an episode one day i don't know what for but now i want a carny on the show <laughs> oh my god <laughs> you've been listening to carrying wayward a supernatural podcast produced by rochelle castellano hosted by Mary Vigiru and myself, Drew Shulman. This week, we'd like to thank Nell for her voicemail. Help us keep the conversation going. You can send us a voice recording at carryingwayward at gmail.com and follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok using at carryingwayward or go watch our live episode over on YouTube under Carrying Wayward. Subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts for weekly content, including some special episodes. Until next week. Carry on our wayward friends. Okay, hold on. Something is playing. I think you're still on ah! Oh, shit. <gasps> Hi. You okay there? Yep. I'm sorry. It's just because I had to bring the volume up for her voicemail because I couldn't hear very well. And then I forgot that I did that. And then you spoke like at a very oh, normal so tone. Sorry. And it just <laughs> felt like a lot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'm sorry, dear.